The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. on SAFM. The question is, what has she not done? She's appeared in television. She's been a producer before for both radio and television. She's had stints on both platforms. She's an activist and advocate, particularly on gender issues par excellence. And her network is just not limited to South Africa, but as far as the United States, in particular, having worked with UN Women and CNN's Richard Quest. Of course, for those who know, there's only one name about which I'm talking, Noloazi Tusini. Good evening, ma'am. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to SAFM. Good evening, Sangeza. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to be with you this evening. No more than we are, but for the benefit of those who are listening at home who might not have access to your biography as expansive as it is, do you want to take a minute or two just to settle yourself in by getting us to get some sneak insights into who you are, what you've done, and what keeps you awake at night, and what things that you look forward to in the following day when you have to get up and make the world a better place? Sure, Sonia. So, you know, that first question that you asked me, I hate so much um, because <laughs> it's so, it's, I think it's I know. a little cringeworthy to, to say, I've done this, I've done that. But I am, I am quite proud of the body of work that I've been able um, to create in my past couple of years, uh, particularly in the media industry. So basically, I started my career um, not in a conventional way. I never intended uh, to end up as a journalist. My plan was to to be the first uh, woman president of South Africa. Uh, that's what my answer was as a child uh, when anyone would ask. And obviously, um, many, many teachers were very surprised by the audacity of that dream. Um, and yeah, I went, I went to university and a couple of things happened, to my, happened in my life that led me towards media and journalism. And essentially, radio, which is the first medium I worked in, found me um, at a time in my life when I was really down, really broken. I had um, dropped out of this university, hadn't finished my law degree. And I just sort of, it fell into my lap quite by mistake. And I really took to it and, and fell in love with radio and fell in love with media industry and journalism, which is not too surprising. My mother was a journalist and an actress. My, my grandfather was, was a radio host, incidentally, on uh, what was called Radio Zulu back in the day, which then became a cozy FM. So it's in the bud, but I tried very hard to, to avoid it for a while. So I started in media as a producer, um, did some journalist work, and really as a woman living in South Africa and the world, um, I don't think that you can ever ignore the gender question. And so as I got mm. older as a person and as a journalist, um, women's rights and queer, right, queer rights as a queer woman became very important for me, became a very important part of my work, um, which is why I say that I do advocacy, particularly in the media space. So working in, part, in the newsrooms that I've been in, around the languaging that we use when we, when we uh, speak around women, around queer people, etc. And that sort of has snowballed in the past couple of years into activist work that I'm actually really proud of as well. I call it hard work. Um, where I developed a workshop that was targeted specifically at men. I developed this workshop uh, the year that Garabo Mukwena specifically died. Um, a workshop really targeting men um, to have conversations around masculinity, the ways in which it manifests in toxic ways, and what healthy masculinity might might look like. 
um, and, and really focusing on men specifically because men are the perpetrators of gender-based violence. And yet, when the conversation was always had, there were in this country, uh, so many victims of domestic abuse and very few perpetrators in terms of the way that the conversation was happening in, in social discourse. And so that's become a great part of, of, of my work and my advocacy work and my activist work around gender. And I've um, you know, recently started working with schools, which then becomes the intersection of race and gender as we've seen it manifest itself in South African schools. So I'm very excited about, um, you know, that new sort of path that my yeah. hard work is taking. So, yeah, that's that, that's basically it. And I've worked with some big names. Uh, some of our best talents in South Africa was very, um, as well, very lucky to be given the opportunity to work with Richard Quest as well from CNN. Um, and, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm happy about that. I've, I've had some amazing opportunities and been able to, to create some incredible radio and some incredible television in this country. Um, I mean, you speak of Reditlavi, John Robbie, Kolani Kualame, soul rest in peace, Nikki Webby yeah. teacher, Richard Quest, Eusebius Makaiza. I'm sure you'll add a name to this list immediately after the show, yes? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. It's on the market. Why do you speak of your dreams in the past tense? Because you said there was a time you thought you would be the first female president and you kept saying was, was, was. Why is that no longer foremost, perhaps, in your thoughts? Or is it something which is still going to mushroom, but just not now? No, not at all. I think for me, uh, I was quite taken by the idea of the media as a fourth estate, right, as almost the unspoken fourth arm of government, uh, the people that hold government, um, hold our leaders, rather not just government, but our leaders as a whole in society to account mm. um, that that help almost be the moral and, and integrity compass of, of, of a country and of a society. And I've lost interest in politics. Um, and I think that's part of the going to come out in part of the conversation that we're going to have with Mavusam uh, Simang a little bit later on. Uh, I don't know that I still believe that politics is the way uh, to reform societies, to lead societies. Politics is the um, instrument and tool that we can use to govern societies, but I don't know that it is the most useful tool to lead societies. And um, it might be my experience with South African politics as a citizen of this country. So, yeah, so that's why the, the, the dream of being politically involved in that way has sort of um, changed form. And the thing is, my, my biggest thing has always been impact, right? Having a positive impact in, in, in mm. my areas of influence in the country that I live in um, amongst my family and friends. And so that's really what I focus in, on and where can I have the biggest kind of impact. And I don't believe, as I look at our political system as it stands right now, and the, the things that are happening um, in our politics in South Africa, that is the best way in which to do it. Fascinating points. Nolwa Zetusini, journalist, activist, speaker, and, and social commentator par excellence. If the last 10 minutes is anything to go by in this conversation, we welcome your thoughts on her because tonight she is the guest host here on SAFM Viewpoint on hashtag Tuesday Takeover. 
leadership versus governance. I like that. She prefers to lead in society as to simply occupy governance, as many who are in government right now seem to be doing. She has since aborted her plan, even though I'm sure that abortion of the plan made itself return. <laughs> she was once going to be the first female president in the country. She nearly lost out to Pumzile Nambunguga as well as Uttabawa but close is no cigar. Yeah. Let's have a conversation <laughs> with her, please. 0891-104-207. We are taking your calls until half past, after which she will be leading the conversation with Tadama Vusom Simang, who incidentally has been himself a Tuesday takeover guest. Nolazi, let, let me just read something from your profile here, because I understand in 2016, you were awarded the Ruth First Fellowship um, yeah. for your research, particularly on the first generation of black and African children to enter desegregated multiracial schools. This is something which touches quite close to my heart. In fact, I'm writing something to that effect. And without telling you much of my thoughts, what first of all agitated you to think that route to the extent that you would research it? And what has your research yielded? Um, okay, so I'm, I'm quite excited about the, the route first because it recently was, was reignited by um, uh, someone who I've also worked with who's become a friend, Azanya Mosaka, for her amazing podcast called Interiority. And she took part of that of, of that speech that I gave um, for the Ruth First Fellowship and, and made a podcast out of it. So I'm quite excited about that if anyone wants to check it out. But basically, as I explained in that podcast and I, and I explained in, in interviews post the Ruth First Fellowship, um, you must understand that in 2016, we were really at the height of the Fees Must Fall movement in this country. And the Fees Must Fall movement forced all of us as a society to ask and answer some really difficult and complex questions about the Rainbow Nation project and the ways in which it had failed us. And of course, being an 80s baby myself and being um, the first one of the first people in my family to go to a multiracial school from right from the beginning of my schooling and, and, and being sort of pushed to be excellent in that space and putting my name on those walls, I felt a sense of guilt when I watched my little cousin, who is about a decade younger than me, um, participating in, 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 in protests about uh, formerly white spaces that were still so violent uh, towards them, um, uh, spaces that are supposed to be safe spaces and, and, and places of education and learning and growth. And I wondered whether or not um, the kind of uh, victory or historic uh, moment that we thought that we had had as the first children and black children in those spaces was a farce. And really, that's what pushed me, that, that sense of guilt, that sense of shame, did we not do enough? Um, really pushed me to, to do that research because I also started wondering whether or not I was the only one kind of projecting myself into the Feast Must Fall movement or whether or not other people who were in the same, had the same kind of positionality felt in the same kind of way. So that's why I, I did the, the, the research. And, and, I mean, it sounds a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know, navel-gazing, but I suppose that's where a lot of, of research and intellectual inquiry comes from, right? And we're all trying to understand the world for ourselves. And basically what um, that research yielded for me was uh, the, the conclusion that I came to, which was unpopular at the time. I think people are, are starting to warm up to it a little bit now was that um, the 80s baby collaborated with the system, but not in the traditional sense of what we understand collaborators to be in South Africa. You know, those people that were 
torched with tires that were the snitches, if you could so, if, if you could so say that in EBB. But rather collaborators in the sense that, first of all, they were children, and children should not be expected to be freedom fighters, to be revolutionary uh, fighters. Children are supposed to have a childhood. Children are supposed to have uh, the 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 luxury of innocence during their childhood, which was really taken away from the 80s babies when, at the point at which they were expected to collaborate um, with the system. And the ways in which that they did, um, for me, I found them to be quite profound and, and tried to redefine really the word collaborator um, and, and talk about a collaboration that is vertical as opposed to horizontal. By that I mean um, that there was still a power imbalance that existed there. Because sometimes when we speak about collaboration, we speak as if we're talking about two equal parties, and that's not the, that's not the case. There's obviously racial power dynamics and uh, child versus adult versus system power dynamics. And yet... Um, what the collaboration of the 80s babies did was, was my conclusion from having spoken to them was that it created a space where the fallists could exist and could agitate um, to remove the more of the violence of the space, right? Because when we went into those spaces, it had never been a black person in that hall. There had never been a black name in that hall. I know for a fact that in the high school that I went to, my name was one of the first or second black names in the school hall. So when we got there, there was no representation. We didn't even know that we belonged in those spaces. And so we, we created a situation where the fallers could be could say, yes, we belong in these spaces. These spaces are ours too. And in fact, if you will not make them, um, if you not, will not make them, uh, you know, safe for us and conducive for us, then they must burn. And I was, to a certain extent, in, in support of that because it had been so long and really um, the, 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 the space had to change. And another big issue, uh, you know, that came out of my research was the one of language and about how much we lost with our languages. I am a Zulu-speaking woman. And I can still speak Zulu relatively fluently, but I no longer think intellectually in Zulu. And, and a lot of the 80s babies were talking about this. So all of my intellectual thought happens in English. And really, my Zulu now I access for uh, emotional reactions and emotional thought. And that's losing a thing. You know, I ask in, 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 in I, I, I talk about in the, in the research about how, where we are from, sits in our mouth and sits in our tongues. And so when you can no longer speak your home language, uh, where do you belong? Because you don't belong in the formerly white spaces, but you also don't, for a certain, in a certain way, don't belong in the township as well or in Makaya that you're from because this, this cutting off of your tongue um, creates a distance between you and your family um, that encouraged you to do this as a way to, to open up the world for you and the complexity of that and the ways in which, you know, we were the first so-called coconuts and Oreos and we, we had to redefine blackness for ourselves and also for South African society to say that someone who sounds like me is still black uh, in, in, in certain kinds of ways. Some, someone who who says, who talks about Zulu as opposed to Isi Zulu, remains black and how it is that I can hold on to my blackness and that cultural pride and understanding with sort of the situation that I'm in, in terms of my language and the things that I've lost as a direct result of my of losing part of my language. I, I wish to contribute because, I mean, you've spoken in many ways everything that I am simply because I share this part of your growth, having attended mm. a, 
an exclusively white boys school in East London, Selborne Primary, Selborne College, in hostel for all the time, 11 of 12 years. And so so everything you say I can relate to. Um, and, and this is just personal. There's nothing I detest more than the reference of me being an Oreo or a coconut. That, that That's good reason for a fight for me. Um, but having said that, it was always first about being and then surviving and mm. then pioneering. Now, mm. don't yes. those yes. who went I in like the, the early pioneering. 90s. I like that. Those who went in the early 90s, who would have matriculated in the early 2000s, late 90s even, mm. are all of those things because they went with absolutely no reference point. Our mm. parents didn't know. Mm. Mm. The system didn't know. Nobody knew. And of all of those people who did not know, the one who had to make it work and knew mm. as little but had more of that responsibility in creating something was Unoloazi in that school. She's the pupil. She's the young one. She's in grade one. She mm. has no reference point. Her parents cannot tell her how to handle certain situations simply yeah. because they were never there. Beyond yeah. being, then you have to survive and create a survival mechanism by virtue of, as you have said, collaborating or, if you like, assimilating. That's a word I prefer to use. You assimilate in the system so that you can learn the rules. I intrinsically believe you cannot change any rules if you don't understand the rules themselves. So you've got to play mm -hmm. the game the way that the game has been played before you, before you can start manipulating it. And in the yeah. course of manipulation, then you can start being a pioneer. In other words, your name appears on the honors board and you feature prominently in the school assembly, if not run it. But all of that does come at a cost. And I'm not so sure if this country is prepared to accept the losses that came with being a Model C pupil. Do you want to finalize this conversation? Let's just focus on the things that were taken for granted that have since become losses to the African child, not least, as you were saying, the fine line you had to straddle between being at home and being in the school. You're not quite a village girl because, well, you're not schooled with them. You are not there. You supposedly eat better food. You speak better English. You wear a different uniform and you're different. You have a, a different reference point to what academics and education is. That's when you are at home. When you are mm -hmm. in the school setup, you are that girl from the villages. You are not one of us, even though you might be here. And of course, in Isikosa, you'll say, in other words, your legs are spread apart between these two communities. Mm. And as and when it is convenient, as, as and when it is convenient, you have to find yourself there. Close this argument in terms of the losses then of being a multiracial school product in South Africa. I think for me, Songezo, um, that, that kind of loss is, is most poignantly um, illustrated in, in, in the language conversation, right? Because my ability to access the English language in the ways that I, I can means that there's certain opportunities in the world opens up to me in a certain way, but there is, there is a thing that I had to give up in order to, to get here. And, and I think that that's the, the, the biggest loss. The loss is... Um, a kind of, of, of blackness and a sense of identity that we knew before uh, we existed in those schools. And yet that loss is bittersweet because it, it also heralds um, a certain kind of access. And that's simply because of the way that the country is structured, right, which is, mm -hmm. which is uh, structured on a white supremacist system. And, and that's why 
having access to English means I've got access to opportunities and, and I have to give up uh, a sense of blackness and a sense of identity, a sense of my Zulu self in order to, 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 to be able to access that. And I think that's the biggest loss. But I always talk about how we are unable to unscramble the egg of colonization. We cannot unscramble um, the egg of apartheid even, or even what happened to, or and continues, by the way, and that's why we've been having protests in our schools, what continues to happen to our children. Uh, we cannot mm. unscramble that egg. We need to fix our schools. We definitely need to fix the, the elite private schools and the Model C schools and ensure that they become... Um, that are for all of our children, definitely. But when I talk about not being able to unscramble the egg, what I'm trying to say is I can't go back to a time before I went to Glenwood Primary for the first time. It's not possible. We can't go back to what Africa or South Africa looked like before colonization. And so we need to imagine ourselves into existence. And this is where, for me, queerness has been very important as as an identity because it allows, because queerness for example, exists out of a um, heterosexual and and gender binary of the world. Um, queer people are able to, are actually forced to imagine themselves into existence. And we can really learn so much uh, from the queer community on how to do that. So as black people in South Africa, what is it to be black now? Like with the history that we have, what does it mean? What are the different um, responsibilities that we have to one another and to our societies? And what are the things that we unfortunately have to let go? And when I say let go, I want I, I really want to qualify that because, you know, when we're having conversations about racism in this country, people talk about it as a part of the goal. That's not what I mean. I mean that we need to let go the idea that we can go back in time. We can't. And so we need to imagine ourselves now, reimagine ourselves now into the fullness of our humanity, the fullness of our complexity, um, so sure. that mm-hmm. we can make something of this loss. Um, yes. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a beautiful book, I think it's by Jacob Zamini, um, uh, uh, Native Nostalgia, I think it's called, that really, I love that book because it speaks about how even in the midst of apartheid, black people in this country were able to create lives of beauty and of love and of happiness. And I love that book because for me, it shows me that we are able to imagine ourselves into being in whatever circumstance that we're in. And now we're in a, in, in a, in a time in this country and in the world where progressive politics and human rights and social justice have become part of national discourse. And that's an important place to be because this is an imagining space. That Let's leave in. it there, Noloazi. Sorry, sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt you there. I have to take this call very quickly, please. Usaki sure. Kile does want to contribute and we have run our time out for this particular sure. segment. Sakile, sure. good evening. Your thoughts very quickly, please, brother. So, I don't think that masculinity is inherently toxic. Um, I mean, you know, we have to look to the fact that we it, it is in a positive way it could actually do good things. I mean, there are just people who should be removed in our society who are extremely violent and who are a danger to, to women and children in particular. But but as mas- masculinity, I think it's a good thing. It has done a lot of things and it continues to do a lot of things now. And I do not think that having less masculine boys or men would be a solution in this crisis because I think it will create another problem if we have less masculine mm-hmm. men and less masculine boys. I mean, for boys, the bullying that they will suffer at school would be immense and it will tend them to be more violent.
and then we'll actually be trying to to have a solution and then not having a right solution into the problem that we have. Thank you, man. Excellent. Thank you very much, Sakila. I think in 30 seconds you can respond. Essentially, he's drawing the distinction between masculinity and toxic masculinity. 30 seconds, Nolwaz. I think masculinity in the way that it has been constructed right now and the ways in which, the ways in which it has been constructed for a patriarchal society and to serve a patriarchal society is absolutely toxic. But, I mean, you look at the work, or you need to look to the work of, 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 of men such as uh, Professor Copano Ratele, who really wants to, whose work explores what a progressive and a non-toxic masculinity would look like. And again, I would say look to the queer community to look at what a healthy masculinity would look like. But I would disagree with the caller and say absolutely the ways in which masculinity manifests itself right now, because it is it is created to uphold a patriarchal system um, and a sexist and, and misogynistic system, is definitely toxic, and we need to look at that. Fantastic. That's a conversation for another day. We appreciate the call, Sakile, as we do the response, Nolwazi. Of course, after the break, Nolwazi takes over because this is her show. I was just indulging her and getting her settled. And you at home to get a sense as to who is going to be in your homes more prominently now for the balance of the hour that remains on the viewpoint. After the break, it's Nolwazi Tusini together with Ndatema Vusom Simang. Please stay tuned. And of course, at any time, give us a call 891 104